Well, good morning, everyone. For those of you who have joined us in person, for those of you who are joining us online, I want to wish you a happy new year this year. And uh, uh, the fact is, though, it's January 9th, and it's been minus 30 for a while. Have you guys noticed that? Do you have that in your neighborhood? Minus 30, minus 40. Um, today, when I got up and walked our dog, it was minus 23, and I thought, wow, warm. So you know you're in Alberta when you think th thoughts like that. But it is time to deal with reality again. The Christmas break is great. It gives us an opportunity to forget about some of the hard things in our lives for a little while. Hopefully you were able to have some good moments on your Christmas break and some meaningful times, but now we need to face regular life again. School, work, unemployment for some, health issues, grief, loneliness, and for you with young kids, long days at home with the kids in minus 30 weather. And it's dark when we get up, and it's dark when we eat supper. Yet this is part of life right now. And sometimes the realities of life can feel like heavy burdens. They can cause weariness in our souls or feel like desperation that just nags away at our hearts. So we need rest and refreshment for our souls. We need peace of mind. We need a deep soul contentment that goes beyond our troubles at work or our challenges at school or the strife at home or mental and physical health issues, or doubts about faith or anxiety about the future. And I think most people want peace or rest for their souls. So where can we find it? And people try all kinds of things, escape activities, amusement parks, some addiction, maybe an escape vacation, Maybe binge watching a show on TV or binge drinking or binge eating or binge shopping. And, and we try these because they promise some measure of relief. But eventually we discover that they can't deliver deep soul rest. We can experience the ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure, as C.S. Lewis said in his Screwtape Letters. So is it possible to experience an ever-deepening rest as we go along in life? And Jesus addresses this. He, in fact, makes an outrageous claim at first glance. He invites us to come to him to receive rest for our souls. And it's not just soul rest for when we die. It's rest for everyday life. Most of us have no problem coming to God for soul rest when a loved one is near death. And we pray for rest for their souls, for our souls. But Jesus promises a rest for our souls in everyday life. So, so what is that about? And is such a rest possible? And today we're going to seek answers to a couple of questions. The first one is, why would we come to Jesus to find rest for our souls in everyday life? And the second is, what is the pathway to such rest? But if you're a Christian, you might think that first question is a bit ridiculous. Why would we come to Jesus for rest for our souls? 
And you're saying, why wouldn't we come to Jesus for rest for our souls? Well, there are many barriers that can keep us from actually coming to Christ. And one of them can be our own perception of what Jesus or God thinks of us. So, so let's probe this a little with a question. What do you think Jesus thinks of you? Really, if, if you went deep into your soul, what picture do you have in mind of Jesus when he's thinking about you? What, what's the expression on his face? Or, or what do you think God thinks of you? What picture comes to mind as he thinks of you? And many life experiences and Bible verses or words from other people can impact the picture we have of God and his view of us. For me, I have at times thought that God's posture towards me is one of sympathetic disappointment. He has given me a life, opportunities, and gifts, yet I still mess up, I still sin, so he's there to pick me up, dust me off, and get me going again. But he mostly puts up with me. He knows he is stuck with me, he knows he has to carry me, but it's a real drag for him. Yet is that an accurate biblical picture of God's heart for me or for you? And that's what we're going to look at as we enter into a new series of messages today. Exploring Jesus' heart for us. What does the Bible reveal about this? And we need to let it shape our view of God's heart for us. For if we allow our own thoughts and words to speak into our hearts about what we think we might have a distorted view of God and his heart towards us but if we let the Bible shape our view of God and his view of us then it can remove at least some of the barriers that keep us from coming to him and then it's possible to receive the rest for our souls that Jesus offers. I'm going to get a good chunk of my material for this series from a little book called Gentle and Lowly by Pastor Dane Ortland. And if you want to get that book, you can spend some time soaking a lot deeper into it than we will get in this series. But in the introduction, he writes this. This book is for those with an increasing suspicion that God's patience with us is wearing thin. Or for those of us who know God loves us but suspect we have deeply disappointed him. Or for those who have told others of the love of Christ yet wonder if to us he harbors mild resentment. Or who wonder if we have shipwrecked our lives beyond what can be repaired. Or who are convinced that we permanently diminished our usefulness to the Lord. Or we have been swept off our feet by perplexing pain and wonder how we can keep living under such numbing darkness. Or who look at the data of our lives and conclude, well, the only possible explanation is God is either stingy and doesn't want to give me blessing or he doesn't care. This book, he writes, is written, in other words, for normal Christians. For sinners and sufferers. How does Jesus feel about them? And in this series, we will focus 
not primarily on what Christ has done, but on who he is. Both are important, but sometimes we can so focus on the doctrines about Christ and knowing those that we forget to know Christ himself and his heart for us. So today we're going to look at perhaps the most famous passage on Jesus' heart that promises rest. And we're going to discover why we would come to Jesus for this rest. And then we will look at the pathway to rest that Jesus offers. So if you have a Bible, our text is Matthew 11, verses 25 to 30. Matthew 11, verses 25 to 30. And you can follow along in your Bibles or on your devices or on the screen behind me. And it says this. At that time, Jesus declared... I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, this passage follows a section where Jesus speaks woes or judgment against cities that refused to recognize him as God the Son. They rejected the possibility of God's presence being among them in this man who was performing these incredible miracles and giving this deep teaching. Jesus also experienced opposition from the religious leaders of the day especially from the Pharisee sect. Now, these guys greatly valued the scriptures or God's word. But in their zeal to apply them to people's lives, they started writing their own interpretations and came up with this huge body of oral law, spoken law, known only to them or those who were experts in that. And they got lost in that. They forgot the heart of God for his people and became legalists who treated people harshly if they did not follow everything prescribed. So they actually placed a heavy burden on the ordinary God-seeking person. And they also became somewhat prideful in their knowledge of the law. And this did not impress God. In fact, Jesus revealed that many of these religious leaders were as lost or as far from God as some depraved pagan. Yet God would reveal himself to ordinary people who looked to him with faith. And Jesus thanks God for this in verse 25. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And this can encourage us. God values anyone who comes to him humbly with a faith-filled approach. He is not impressed by human credentials or knowledge or pride or religiosity. 
religion that is just done for the sake of performing. And then in verses 26 and 27, Jesus talks about a knowledge that is way beyond the smartest scholar that lived at that time. It was the knowledge of God. And no, he says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father. So there's no greater expert on God than God. It seems some of those religious leaders thought they were the ultimate experts. But notice, it's also possible for people to access this knowledge of God and this relationship with the Father and the Son. For at the end of verse 26, Jesus says, No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Which means it's possible to know God if the Son chooses to reveal him to us. And we see this happen throughout Jesus' ministry where ordinary people who were uneducated and poor and unimportant but were simple and honest approached Jesus with faith and he revealed himself who he really was to them but not to the religious scholars and those who were in positions of pride and power. And then Jesus invites everyone to come to him to find rest. So verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So there's the rest for our souls that we're talking about. And Jesus invites those who labor and are heavy laden to come and receive this rest. So what kind of labor and heavy burdens does Jesus refer, refer to? And I think he's certainly referring to the load of religious responsibilities placed on the people by the Pharisees, by the religious leaders of that day. But I think that labor and heavy burdens goes beyond the rules of the Pharisees. For those first century people, just like you and me, sought God and his saving work in their lives. They needed saving from their sins and guilt. They needed rest from attempting to justify themselves. They needed deliverance from oppression and injustice. And we also need such salvation. And we need release from the burdens of the other ways that we try to find rest for our souls, but ultimately don't satisfy. One commentator writes, it's easy to find temporary comfort in places other than Jesus himself. Whether it be TV, drinking, escapist vacations, porn, or a myriad of other things that dull us to the pain of life. But much of what we use to dull life's pain does exactly the opposite. It gives us fleeting pleasure and leaves us empty in the end. But Jesus invites us to come to him and find rest from all these burdens. Which brings us to our first question, why would we come to Jesus for rest in our everyday lives? Why would we come to someone we think is disappointed in us? Or mildly resents us? Or puts up with us? Or wouldn't really spend time with us if he didn't have to? Why would we come to Jesus for rest in our everyday lives? Because he is gentle and lowly in heart. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle 
and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So Ortland points out that this is the only place in the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, 89 chapters, where Jesus specifically tells us about his own heart. It's like the Son of God, Ortland says, peels back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is. And Ortland also points out that to understand this, we need to adjust our definition of heart. When we think heart, we think emotions. Oh, look at their heart. Look at their emotions. Look at the heart that they have for people. But in the Bible, when it speaks of heart, whether Old or New Testament, it speaks of the center of us. So the heart is not part of who we are. It is the center of who we are, according to the Bible. So Jesus, at his very center, is gentle. And this word is used only three other times in the New Testament. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Same word, meek, gentle. Matthew 21, 5, which quotes Zechariah 9, 9, and talks about Jesus riding into Jerusalem humble and on a donkey, same word. Or 1 Peter 3, 4, where Peter encourages wives to nurture more than anything else the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable imperishable beauty of a gentle spirit. Same word. So Jesus is meek. He's humble. He's gentle. He's not harsh or reactionary. He is not easily exasperated. He's the most understanding person in the universe. And Ortland says the posture most natural to Jesus is not a pointing finger, but open arms. Jesus also says, I am lowly in heart, or some of your versions say humble in heart. This overlaps with the word gentle. It is generally translated humble, like in James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But it also refers to those who have been driven down by life circumstances. As Mary used this word in her song about her life and called, about, called herself one of humble estate, humble position in the world. So this means that Jesus is accessible, available like any ordinary person. He is approachable. You don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops to talk to Jesus. You don't have to book an appointment to see him six months from now. He is lowly, accessible, available. Ortland writes, the minimum bar to be enfolded in the embrace of Jesus is simply open yourself up to him. It's all he needs. It's the only thing he works with. Verse 28 tells us who qualifies. Those who are weary those who are heavily burdened. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come to Jesus. No payment is required. Notice he says, I will give you rest. His rest is a gift, not transaction. And he also says, Ortland does, if Jesus hosted his own personal website, the most prominent line of the about me drop down would be, I am gentle and humble in heart. Gentle 
and lowly in heart is the center, part of the center of Jesus. And this may not be how we typically think of Jesus or God. Ortland quotes Puritan preacher Thomas Goodwin, who wrote also about the heart of Christ. And Goodwin wrote this. We are apt to think that Jesus, being holy, is therefore of a severe and sour disposition against sinners and not able to bear them. No, says Jesus, I am meek. Gentleness is my nature and temper. Ortland writes, Goodwin says that this high and holy Christ does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners and numbed sufferers. Such embrace is precisely what he loves to do. He cannot bear to hold back. We naturally think of Jesus touching us like a little boy who reaches out to touch a slug or a worm for the first time, face all screwed up, cautiously extending an arm, giving a yelp of disgust when he touches the creature, instantly withdrawing. We think that's how Jesus or God looks at us or feels about us. Which is why we need a Bible. Our natural intuition can only give us a God like us. For we get disappointed in people. We mildly resent people. We see some people as those who have shipwrecked their lives and, you know, can't do much more with them. But the God revealed in the scripture deconstructs our natural tastes and startles us with one whose infinite perfections are matched by his infinite gentleness. In fact, Gentleness is one of his perfections. So, you don't have to have your life together to come to Christ. You don't have to wait to come to him until you're in a better state of mind or more presentable. He says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. So that's why we can come to Jesus for rest, because he's gentle and lowly in heart. So what's the pathway to Jesus' rest? Well, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, this yoke is not an egg yoke. He's talking about a wooden beam shaped to fit over the necks of animals, usually oxen. And there were leather straps that held this wooden beam in place. And the farmer would hitch his plow or his wagon to the yoke in some way, so that he could depend on the animal strength to pull whatever was being pulled. So the yoke was the primary point where the animal felt the weight of whatever it was pulling. And since the farmer used the yoke to kind of harness and guide the animals, we can see Jesus' yoke as his teaching and his way of life. And maybe it's also a picture of him joining us side by side, as we learn from him and learn his yoke or his teaching. In Christian circles, we call this discipleship, learning and living the way of Jesus. And Jesus says at the end, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And we look at that and say, well, that, like, how, does that, how does that work? It can't mean the Christian life is easy and light. Look at Jesus' own life. It reveals the heavy toll and high calling of following God to the end. 
anyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted, will face trials and temptations. However, though life contains hardships, it sure helps if the one leading you has a gentle and accessible heart. Jesus' yoke is a yoke of kindness. And Ortland writes, who could resist this? It's like telling a drowning man that he must put on the burden of a life preserver. Yet the man shouts back, no way, not me. This is hard enough, drowning here in these stormy waters. The last thing I need is the added burden of a life preserver around my body. And that's what we're like, confessing Christ with our lips, but generally avoiding deep fellowship with him out of a muted understanding of his heart. So the pathway to rest, the rest Jesus offers run through, runs through taking on Jesus' yoke and learning from him. So how would we actually do that? Here's some possible steps for you to take. Number one, ask Jesus to help you make him your number one priority in life. Not your last resort, your number one priority. We must take on Jesus' yoke and learn from him every day. This is not a quick fix, it's a journey. We won't keep going on a journey if we don't make him our number one priority. Philippians 3.8 says, Indeed, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So Christ has to be our number one priority in our lives. Secondly then, we ask him to speak to us, to teach us to comfort us, to show us the next step through his word or in other ways. Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 in our passage says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So we ask, teach me, Lord. Open my eyes to see something in what I'm reading today. Open my eyes to what you have to say to me. And then number three is pay attention. Sometimes we ask the Lord to speak and then we go on with our day. And don't, don't even stop to take note of what he might be saying to us. So pay attention to a Bible verse he draws your attention to. Notice a song that he brings to mind. Ask him what he wants you to see. Notice something that keeps coming up again and again in your life. And number four, obey or act. James 1.22 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. So, Jesus might say, what I want you to do is rest in me. So rest in him. Or trust in me. So we entrust it to him. Or wait for me. Then we wait for him with the rest for our soul that we have received from him. Or change. So we depend on him and the Holy Spirit to help us to change. And as we grow in regularly walking with the Lord, we can experience daily rest in our souls. Now, last week or sometime this week, I recognized an anniversary in my life. I'm old, I know, but I recognized I've been a Christian for 50 years now. I became a Christian December 26th, 1971. So we just passed December 26th, 2021. 50 years of walking with the Lord. And I wish I could tell you, if you just get into this rhythm, 
Life will go pretty smoothly after a few months and you will live with never-ending rest in your soul. But the reality is I still struggle. I experience times of soul peace and other times of soul disturbance. And every day, the enemy is constantly at work to disturb our souls and to tempt us to find rest in something other than Jesus. So we need to come, keep coming to Jesus for rest with the new challenges before us. And such rest is possible regardless of our life situation if we regularly and repeatedly come to Jesus. So as we prepare for the Lord's table in a moment, I want to invite you to come to him. And we can come to him because he has a gentle and lowly heart. And I want you to see his gentleness and accessibility as we come to his table. And then receive his ministry and his love for you. So, will you just come before the Lord for a moment if you're a Christian here and see Jesus' gentleness? And see Jesus as accessible, lowly, humble, and see him with open arms. And Lord Jesus, you see us with your gentle and humble heart. And you promise rest for our souls. If we just come to you. So, if we've got some picture of you that is distorted that's wrong, that's twisted because of something that happened in our lives, because of something someone said, because of some bad experience maybe in the church. Cleanse us of that, Lord. Change that. To help us see who you really are and what you're really like. You have a heart of love for sinners and sufferers. So we come to you and we need your rest.